So DealQuest listeners, I am so excited to have Lori Bachman coming up on the DealQuest podcast. Lori has this amazing podcast called Succession Stories, and that's how I got connected with her. And um, we delved uh, into a bunch of stuff around family business and some other things on the show. So Lori, give them a little preview of what they're going to hear on your episode of DealQuest. We talked about a lot of things, Corey, from how I got started in entrepreneurship to corporate startups and private equity. But we talked a lot about privately held companies and some of the opportunities they face and challenges they face when it comes to succession and finding the right people to help them achieve their, you know, their multi-generational goals. And it takes a top-down approach as well as a bottom-up. Yeah, and I, and I love that portion you'll hear. Uh, you know, we're not going to give it away here, but you'll hear about the top down and the bottom up. And also, you know, the, like the dynamics of what makes, uh, because there are statistics that are not great about each generation and how businesses go. And I think Lori gave some great content around what makes those, you know, what, what companies should do to be successful in a multi-generational way. Any last thoughts on what you want the listeners to know and what's coming up? I think there's a great conversation that we have around succession, transitions, innovating, and growth. So if they can tune in, listen in, check it out, that'd be awesome. Look forward to seeing you there. This is a great episode. Don't miss it. Do you want your business to grow faster? Are you open to new and out-of-the-box ways to drive revenues and increase value? How do you imagine the most successful entrepreneurs and business leaders double, triple, or expand their businesses tenfold or more? The answer is deals. This is a weekly podcast featuring conversations with business owners, executives, and leaders as we reveal behind-the-scenes details that give you, our listeners, the confidence to pursue your own deal-driven growth. On the show, we discuss a huge variety of deals, everything from large complex mergers and acquisitions to smaller deals that you can do even without significant capital. My name is Corey Kupfer, and I've been supporting deal-driven growth for businesses for 35 years as a successful entrepreneur, professional negotiator, and attorney. My goal is to help you strategize, plan for, find, and complete deals that will help your company grow faster. Welcome to the DealQuest podcast. Let's get started. Lori Barkman is the CEO of Small.Big, consulting with entrepreneurs, small businesses, and nonprofits to develop strategies for innovation, transition, and growth. Lori hosts the Succession Stories podcast, featuring interviews with CEOs and next-generation entrepreneurs. She is the former CEO of Genco Marketplace, acquired by FedEx, and was the CEO and managing partner of Topanga Partners, a private equity firm focused on early-stage technology. Lori has more than 20 years of digital transformation, entrepreneurship, and entrepreneurship in tech, retail, logistics, and service industries, from startups to corporates. She's an advisory board member of Safety.io, a corporate startup subsidiary of MSA Safety, and is an instructor at CMU for the Corporate Startup Lab Capstone course. She's passionate about educational causes and serves on the board of the Pittsburgh Promise, helping students achieve their dreams. Lori earned a BS from Cornell University and MBA from Carnegie Mellon University. She lives in Pittsburgh, PA, with her family uh, and is originally from Albany, New York. Off the air, she, we, she and I were talking a little bit about the fact that I suddenly have all these connections with Pittsburgh and spent my first trip there uh, about a year ago and really uh, love the city. Lori, welcome to the DealQuest podcast. Thanks, Corey. It's great to be here. Well, so before we talk about all the great experience you've had and you know the past and what you do now that relates to various types of deals, I want to take you back to when you were growing up, I guess, in Albany from your bio uh, as a young girl, 8, 10, 12 years old. What did you want to be when you uh, grew up? Because uh, 
My guess is it's likely not what you ended up being, but maybe I'm wrong. Maybe you knew you were going to get into private equity and be an executive and get involved with family businesses and strategic planning, but usually not at 8, 10, 12. You tell me. (laughs) It's funny to look back on that time because none of us really know what a career is anyway. And I especially didn't. My parents wanted us to focus on education and that was really the main thing, getting the best grades we could. And and I worked really hard in high school. I would say I started to figure out that I was good at organization stuff when I, in high school, I was the leader. I was student Senate president for two years out of four, which was pretty cool. And I got really involved in leadership within the school. So with the administration, even helping to interview a new superintendent, I was always in situations that I was a little bit above my skis and I had to be okay with that. And I get used to that. And then understanding with students, how do we mobilize change? How do we make an impact? And how do I work with my fellow students to make stuff happen? And so all that being said, I still didn't know what I wanted to do. My mom thought, oh, you're going to go into politics. And I really had no interest in that. She thought I was a diplomat and always, and I think where that comes from is I always try to find common ground. Yeah. Which then you'll laugh. I thought maybe I want to be a lawyer (laughs) (laughs) and find common ground. But then no, not so much. Didn't want to do that. And when I was looking at schools to go to, What I realized is I didn't know what I wanted to do after. So therefore, I should pick a program that would help me after four years to have that idea and hopefully get a job. And so that's what I did. And that's why I chose Cornell. They have an excellent program that was a great fit for me. And it turned out that my career got started in human resource management. You know, it's funny, just out of, you talked about sort of being a student leader and being involved, and I don't know why this came to mind. It's not apropos much, except it just made me internally chuckle, so I'll share it with the audience. You know, I remember, so I went to college in the late 70s, early 80s, and it was sort of in between, you know, it was like, it was not in the 60s when things, you know, when when leadership and activism and protest was, you know, really, and then, of course, we have the times now with everything that's going on. I remember, you know, getting into student leadership, and we had a big protest, and the, and the issue was around the fact that they were taking away some of the student parking to make it faculty parking. And I kind of laugh in the scope of the major issues in the world that students protest and become active around, that become leaders around these days. Uh, you know, at that time, that was the big issue was the parking. <laughs> yeah, I, it makes me chuckle too. We had a brand new gymnasium. We were fortunate to have this lovely addition to the high school. It was fantastic. And it would have been large enough to hold graduation indoors. But yes, our protest was our graduating class didn't like change. And we had another venue in downtown Albany that was tradition. And that's where everybody went. And we didn't want to be the class to be affected. (laughs) So that was the cause. (laughs) Yeah, It it makes you laugh as you look back. But at the time, it it was very, very important. (laughs) Especially because my guess is uh, you and your you know, fellow students like me and my fellow students, like it was a, like, we took it really seriously. Oh it was like yeah. A major issue. You know? <laughs> major. Like, <laughs> exactly. Parking. <laughs> I love it. All right. And then, you know, one more question looking back, what was your first deal of any type, whether that was, you know, when you were younger or older, you know, whatever you think of as a deal, what was your first deal? I started selling pretty young because back then there was some child labor, right? So when you needed to do fundraising (laughs) for your softball team, what do they do? They give you wrapping paper to go sell. We sold, being from upstate New York, Hickory Farm sausage and cheese. I kid you not. And so we had the, I went around door to door in my neighborhood and got people to buy 
hickory farm sauces and cheese. I sold a lot of it enough that I earned some sort of speaker or something, you know, electronics that I was very excited about. And I think that was my early confidence boost that, Hey, I have some selling skills here. And eventually I rose in the ranks and I did babysitting and mowed lawns. And my goal was to buy a bike. I wanted a 10 speed bike. And I saved up $130 and I paid for that bike with every penny I earned. And I was really, really proud of it. Wow. Love it. So uh, give us just a couple of minutes on, you know, uh, what you do now, who you serve, and then maybe another minute or so on the, you know, on your, on your podcast. I've had an awesome career and I call it this serpentine kind of a career. Some people call about it, talk about a career ladder. I think that's a falsehood in today's environment. And my career has been kind of these curves and, and edges and really growing across. And as you mentioned in my intro, different industries and different size of companies. I've worked in startups where I was number 20 and I worked in, you know, billion dollar publicly traded companies. And the thing that I've always enjoyed in going back and forth between them is being either on the entrepreneurial side or intrapreneurial, where in a large company, you can still make a difference. You can still be innovative. And so I think what's driven me throughout my career, whether I was doing digital marketing and serving on a marketing team to drive growth and you know online revenue or in-person revenue, whatever it is for services business. And then over time, when I became a CEO, that was certainly one of the pinnacles of my career and managing $100, $150 million company and all the things that, that come with that, the challenges and the benefits of that and the incredible learning experience that that was for me. And so that journey in and of itself has led me to where I am today, which is essentially working with entrepreneurs and privately held companies so that they can achieve their vision for growth. And so if it's a family held, privately held company that is multiple generations and their intent is to have that succession, it's just so intriguing to me to think back to these early entrepreneurs, these founders, that's what they were, right? The spark of an idea that they can take to market and grow it. And then the next generation takes it to the next level. And so what inspired me or not, yeah, we can certainly (laughs) talk about that. That's a show in and of itself. And so for my experience, when I was interviewing with this company as the CEO of one of the subsidiaries, the interview was to run this subsidiary, but the overall company at the time was a third generation family business. And the Mm. more I learned about the person that was my boss, the hiring manager, I was just so excited because during his career, when he overlapped with his father, you know, his father was Gen 2 and Gen 2 took the transportation to the next level. So Gen 1 was the horse and buggy. Yeah. Okay. Delivering fruits and vegetables in Pittsburgh. And then Gen 2 was trucking. And then Gen 3 was logistics industry and third-party logistics. And really, he was one of the main creators of what's known today as the reverse logistics industry. And that was Gen 3. That wasn't that long ago. And here we are, myself and other executives that were hired in from the outside, we were part of a long-term succession plan because there were some family members, but they were not interested in in being in part of the operating company. They were owners, but not actively involved. And 
So for me, coming into that company and understanding the potential of what a long-term vision looks like, the long-term strategy, I had worked in these environments where it's sort of up or out, right? And the short-term mentality. And here was a long-term view. Yeah, I, absolutely. Yeah. And really yeah. looking at it for the big picture, certainly to get a return on the investment, stakeholders matter but also the employees matter. And they took a long-term view with employees. They took a very long-term view with customers. And that was extremely inspiring to me. And so flash forward where I created my own consulting firm, as you mentioned, called small.big, my focus is working with entrepreneurs and small to medium-sized companies who have that vision, but don't quite know yet exactly how to get there. Maybe they have some plans in place, maybe not yet. And so we work together to what I say is have the aha moments, but then also to create the lasting impact. Mm. Love that. Yeah. And, and having that experience in a you know, multi-generational business, you know, it's really, I have some clients, you know, who are like that. And it really is such a different perspective than most companies, right? When you have family businesses that are intended or have been multi-generational already. I want to spend a little time on that specific area before we move into more of what you do in your podcast and, you know, on your Experience on the VC side, because we really haven't, uh, you know, we've touched on it on this podcast and we're now, I don't have it in front of me, but I think you're going to be episode maybe 90 something. So we're almost two years in and we haven't delved deep into the family business uh, side of things. So, you know, there's two areas that I want to talk about. I mean, one is just really just the dealing with family, you know, one, one kind of deal is, is a business partnership. And when that business partnership, and there are enough challenges, you know, in business partnerships, they're like marriages in many ways, right? You know, when it's not family members, but then you have the additional dynamic of family members. So I'd love any thoughts on that. And then of course, you got the whole multi-generational and succession conversation. And we all know, or I'll, I'll you know, maybe not everybody in the audience knows, but I'm sure, you know, the statistics on success, especially, I mean, since it's a higher on success from first to second generation, right? Although there's no guarantee there, but then certainly once you start going from second or third generation and beyond that, I mean, the success rate goes down significantly. Each generation goes down. Uh, And, you know, people have cited various factors for that, whether it's, you know, just uh, obviously moving much, you know, further away from the that founder mentality and startup, but also, you know, I think there's a factor that's just called math where you end up just because in many companies, you just end up with more and more owners because everybody's got several kids that it goes to. And then the next generation, if you go from one to three owners, because there's three kids and those three owners each have two kids, you got, you know, so there's some math involved in there that cause family issues. But any case, what are your thoughts on the specific things that come up just in operating a family-owned business with family ownership, and then also in terms of the succession conversation and what makes that successful versus not successful? Family businesses are so interesting because they're like snowflakes. No one is the same as the other, and they each have their own dynamics. And with my podcast called Succession Stories, I talk to CEOs of family businesses And I like to think of them as next generation entrepreneurs. And I also talk with people who support that ecosystem. It's a newer show. I've recorded about 25 or so episodes. And it's been fascinating because there are some common threads as I have these conversations, but then there are things that sort of stand out of uniqueness, you know, obviously by company. But the first thing in terms of operating, hands down, is values that a company really needs to have its values not only written down and very clear, 
but the understanding of where those values come from, why they exist, and then how they come to life. You can't just write it down and then not live the values yourself, right? Just, that's true in any company, but it's especially valuable in a family business because what you get with that is the history. There was one interview that I did recently with a wonderful person. Her name's Ann Dugan, and she's extremely well known in this space. She's consulted with thousands of family businesses during her career. And she shared a story about a company that really had to get back to the basics. It was, it was challenged recently through COVID. She, she didn't tell me the name of the company, but she said if she had shared it, it would be a name we would all recognize. And it was in the hospitality food industry space. And they're struggling you know, because of COVID and, and really trying to understand where they should be going in the future and just some, a lot of dynamics there. And what they ended up doing was spending time going back to the founder the founder's vision, the founder's values, and understanding through the generations what it has meant to them. And it was very grounding. It was a very grounding exercise. And one of the things that came out of it is they wanted to go back to their entrepreneurial roots. And where that leads them, I don't know the next part of the story, but I do want to emphasize values as a great place for any business, not just family companies, but to have that well-descripted. And one example just recently with one of my clients, they're a private company, not a family company, but there is this kind of partners, two partners in the business, and they really hadn't written down their values. And so we did a strategic planning exercise with the team. And that's literally where we started was going through the visioning. What is the vision? What is the mission? And what are the values? And so for companies, particularly multi-generational companies, where sometimes that can get lost from generation to generation, you know, back to your numbers and the statistics. Yeah, well, commonly what's known as shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves in three generations. Have you ever heard that saying? I have. And it's interesting because apparently it's a common theme globally. It's not just in the United States. And so the second generation gets the keys Now they're in charge, but they don't want to mess anything up, right? They don't want to be the spouting whale that gets harpooned. They want to just keep things running. And so they're not reinvesting. They're not innovating. And then the third generation comes along and they realize, oh, wow, maybe we do need to do something different, but it could be too late. And so that's part of the reason. The other reasons why companies don't necessarily go forward can be complications with owners and owner decisions. As you said, the family is growing and maybe a lot of people want to get a piece of the pie. So sometimes the distributions from the company can't feed everybody, right? The growth of the family is outpacing the growth of the business. And so sometimes there's a divestiture because of family conflict could be related to that. And there's uh, some examples of that on my show where that's been discussed. And then another reason where there might be no continuation to the fourth and beyond is because there's no succession. And where there's no succession might be the family member. And then you get to, well, why is there no family member? Well, there could be a number of reasons. One tragic show I aired was because there was a death and the second generation died in a plane crash. Wow. And that company sold to private investors and is thriving. So I had spoken to the CEO that they, who had bought the company and he had told that story. Another reason that family businesses don't go to family is because of skill set and fit. You know, if you're honest, really honest with yourselves, you might find that, okay, there's maybe a willing participant, you know, cousins or, you know, sons, daughters, whoever they may be want to be involved and just maybe they're not a fit. And there have been some stories on my show where 
you know, not only do you sometimes have to fire your grandpa if they're there too long, but maybe you have to let your, your son go. And that's super tough. But there's a lot of things we could talk about regarding building skill sets, building a pipeline and bringing in that next generation of talent. And yeah, I'm happy to share some of the, the learnings that, that I've, I've garnered on that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I say, let's just go right there because, you know, it's been interesting. I mean, there are, uh, first of all, in general succession, even outside of family business, right, is, uh, is something that uh, a lot of people don't do well in some industries. I, I do a lot in financial services and, and in the example, in the investment advisory space, the wealth management space, there's a big issue because you've got, you know, the average age of an investment advisory, independent investment advisory firm is in their late 50s, early 60s. They've done a terrible job in general of, uh, you know, bringing up in uh, a next gen or creating a partnership track or training people. And I'm not, I'm talking about in most cases, it's not even talking about, you know, uh, family members, it's talking about anybody, you know, and that limits their options, right? I mean, they, you know, they take out internal succession as an option and now they need to sell externally, which, you know, may be fine, but it just takes it off the table. And then, uh, you know, when you're talking about sort of grooming family members, there's a lot of other issues that come up, right? Around, well, yeah, what if one of the Children is really the better person, but the other, you know, children feel like they want to be involved or feel slighted or, you know, it's like yes. a million issues that come Absolutely. up. Absolutely. Let's talk about that a little bit. Yeah. Let's take a break from the show for a minute so I can invite you to a new way to determine your deal readiness. I created a fast and easy assessment that will determine exactly how deal ready you are. Once you complete the assessment, I use your responses to identify the obstacles that are holding you back from being a deal-driven growth genius. It's as easy as heading to coreycupfer.com slash assessment. That's coreycupfer.com slash assessment and filling out a few multiple choice questions. I'll be checking in after the episode to see what your results are. Now back to the show. So if we kind of work our way, we can talk top down and I think we can talk bottom up. So top down, if a family business has a governance structure, that can be helpful. So what I mean by that is a family board so the owners might participate on the family board, even if they're not part of the day-to-day operations of the company. And there are some wonderful organizations out there that advise companies on creating and operating a family board. And I was not part of that because I wasn't family, but I did understand the dynamics there a little bit when I was at the company I mentioned earlier for myself, my own experience. The privately held company had not only a family board, but then it had a board of directors. So it had both or a board of advisors, you know, independent board members. And beyond the CPA and the attorneys, right? These were also business leaders, trusted business leaders that were advising, you know, the chairman of the company. And so not every organization has both, I realize, you know, maybe that they want to start with one or the other, but that's sort of the top-down view is I think having organizations like that, having this outside perspective, certainly for an independent board of directors can be really helpful especially when it comes to big issues like succession, because it just helps diffuse potentially. And then if there are issues to resolve, discuss, and be proactive on, that's where the family council, the family board can be so impactful. And again, there's some, uh, one of my episodes, I think it was episode three with Shelly Taylor. She did a fantastic job talking about the creation and purpose of a family board. And similarly to what I mentioned earlier, values is a key part of that. 
So it just, it all stitches together. It has to stitch together. Yeah. So the top down part is kind of where I wanted to start. And then within the company dynamic for succession, the bottom up part, a lot of times people will ask, and I do ask guests on my show. So if you, did you start by working at the bottom? Does your family business want you to get all of your experience in the company or do they want you to get experience elsewhere and then come in? Mm -hmm. So there's no, again, back to the snowflake thing. There's no one answer to that. I think a common denominator with any entrepreneur is there's some hook. There's some reason that they want to come in. And that I think more than anything is important because you can't force someone to do it. It won't necessarily be the right thing for the company and it won't be the right thing for the individual. So why, you know, why go down that path? In interviews in life, in general, there's three things. They always boil down to three things. Whenever I personally have an interview or if I'm coaching my son or daughter on having an interview, whatever it might be, or a friend, there's three things, Corey. It's strengths, motivations, and fit. Every question you get or create is going to fit into one or more of those buckets, strengths, motivation, and fit. So when you're doing succession and having that long-term view for your family business, you got to really look at it from a big picture and are the strengths there? Not yet. Okay, well, what are we going to do to help that individual? Well, how about we get them into a rotational program in the company? How about we get them into mentoring? You know, this, you know Sally or um, Dimitri, they need another, you know, 10 years before they're ready for this or that. Okay, great. Well, let's come up with a development plan for those people and being proactive about it and sticking to it. And then the mentoring, again, coming back to that is so important because the readiness isn't always there, but if they're motivated, they're motivated to want to grow, then that'll come over time. The fit is the personality, the dynamics in the organization. There's one individual, I love my interview with him, Will Connect. He was second generation from his father and he came into the business he wasn't gung-ho initially, but then over time, he realized that was his calling. And he admitted he made mistakes when he first came in. Maybe he was a little bit cocky. Maybe he yeah. thought he knew everything. And he was just so honest and authentic in our discussion. And I think that's important because not only do folks not necessarily have the work experience if they don't, you know, if they're just starting out in the careers, but you know, there can be some of the, hey, your name's on the door. So maybe we're going to give you more, you know, of a halo than you might have if you walked in off the street, but you don't necessarily deserve it. And then over time, people resent you for it. So you kind of have to balance that out, right? You have to know something, contribute something and kind of earn your stripes, just like anywhere else. If you don't, then that might cause issues at the employee level and or at the family level. So I don't know, Corey, again, I think there's a lot of things in between. There's no one answer. But I think it, it comes back to kind of this top down and bottom up view. Yeah, you know, I love that. And it's been interesting to me because I've seen the biggest extremes in my, with my family business clients and, you know, connections and whatever. Uh, you know, I've seen situations where it is just, you know, it's really wonderful to watch, right? You know, their cohesiveness in the family. I mean, and listen, in any family or business relationship, there's always could be different points of view and whatever, and, you know, it's, it's life. I'm not saying everybody, you know, it's always uh, kumbaya, you know, but they always have a way to communicate well and work through it and make decisions and re there's respect. And, you know, and there is this ability to have this long-term view, which, you know, the companies don't necessarily have. And, you know, it really creates some great things. And then, uh, you know, on the flip side, 
I mean, I actually have a client in a similar, in, you know, in logistics and deliveries and trucking and that kind of stuff, whatever, you know, you got two brothers who just don't get along. I mean, really don't get along and how they manage to run this company. So at the success level, they do, despite the fact that they are constantly warring with each other. It's just beyond me. Like the, what it really, because I'm such a positive, optimistic guy, what it really has me to believe is, wow, if they could have this level of success with all the internal drama that's going on, I can't even imagine what they could do if they could get it together. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, you know, yeah. And it um, also makes for very uncomfortable Thanksgiving dinners. Right. Exactly. And, you know, and then, uh, you know, it's, it's multi-generational and there's sort of these factions and, you know, and it's, it's just, and they have several companies. You know, and then and then I've seen, uh, you know, the father son dynamic and, you know, I mean, we could say parent child, but, you know, and I'm sure there's dynamics, but just the reality of situations is it's more often father son. Uh, and hopefully that is continued to change. And I see more daughters and, you know, and women uh, taking over companies. But there's something in that father son dynamic that, you know, whether it's the ego clashes or it's the, you know, the, the desire to please or the next generation feeling inadequate, always, always trying to prove themselves. You know, so there's a lot of those kind of dynamics that come up in family businesses as well that, you know, some of them figure out a way to handle well and, and unfortunately some don't. Yeah, no, it is very sensitive. I think we, we talk about companies and we kind of think of them as, as human beings and it's never more true than with a family business because their name is on the door. And especially because there's families behind that name who not only have their livelihoods and and their net worth may be tied into this company, but their standing in the community is also tied to it. And so it really goes beyond the four walls of the business and it sort of permeates who they are and their identity. And yes. so that's why it's so tied in. And, and that's also another reason why sometimes, even if there's no successor, you know, you have folks who might have an exit, you know, might sell their company, but they're holding on as long as they can. There's no one reason for that, obviously, financially, markets, et cetera. But I think too, it's the identity part that if they do leave, if that founder or owner leaves the company, what will he or she do next? Right. And that can be very scary to them. And really, I think it comes down to, you know, they express is what will they do next, but really the underlying question is, who am I without right. my company? Right. And, you know, when you said the word identity the first time in, in, in this last stretch here, you know, I had been thinking that word came to mind even before you said it, because listen, it, outside, even outside of family businesses, it's such a common thing with any entrepreneur who's built anything, you know, for, certainly from scratch, or whatever, to have their identity so wrapped up in their company that they don't know who they are without it. And when you have a multi-generational family business where the family name has been on it, it's even deeper, you know, into, you know, built into the identity conversation. So, yeah, that's a fascinating thing when, uh, you know, when family, you know, decides to move on or needs to move on from it and how people adapt to that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Let's change gears a little bit here uh, because, you know, it's interesting to me that you had that experience, but then, you know, also you were CEO and managing partner at Topanga Partners, which is a private equity firm based on early stage technology companies. You know, that's a whole different ecosystem, right? Usually early stage tech companies are not multi-generation family businesses, right? They're uh, the opposite of that often, you know? Uh, I mean, it's not always the the 22 year old in a garage. So there's a misconception. A lot of times it's actually the 50 something year old, but it's still, you know, it's still sort of startup in nature, uh, you know, it doesn't have that kind of history. Uh, and, you know, the whole private equity world is very different than family businesses, which are often funded by multi-generational wealth. 
So, you know, talk about that experience a little bit and, you know, and, and maybe contrast that. And what did you learn about deals and, you know, company growth from that side? Yeah, no, happy to do that. It's funny, again, as I reflect back on my career, I mentioned earlier this serpentine path. When after I graduated college and I, I worked for four years for Ingersoll Rand Company, which is a global manufacturer, and I was in human resources, and I wanted to completely switch gears. So I, that's why I got my MBA. I chose Carnegie Mellon because I wanted to get into technology, and that's what I did. I completely pivoted and went into digital marketing and technology around the time of the internet bubble, which is around 99, 2000. Mm -hmm. And I had worked for a couple of startups right out of the gates, CMU spinouts. One of them got bought by Lycos, which, which at the time was second largest search engine. Some of, uh, some of your listeners may remember, remember Lycos <laughs> and uh, behind Yahoo. And the other was an internet video search company, which, oh my gosh, were we ahead of our time, right? Because there was <laughs> <laughs> still dial up and you know 30 frames per second watching video was terrible. But anyway, the technology was there. So I had an early look at the challenges of having a technology, but not having a market. Yeah. And here they had raised all this money and eventually they sold. There was an exit, but it wasn't the big fantastic exit. I'm sure the investors were hoping for. And I had this taste of startups and kind of what they were about. And they look all glossy and shiny from the outside. And then when you look on the inside, you're like, oh, wow, you know, this is really cool, but this is super dysfunctional. And right. wow, the culture, you know, is kind of messy over here. The tech is cool, but what are we doing to go to market? Now, my role is on the go to market side. So I was trying to fix that, obviously. But then I said, you know what, I'm, I'm, I'm ready to go back to a big company. And that's when I went to American Eagle Outfitters. And this was a time when e-commerce was still kind of new. Yeah. And I was on the early team building AE.com's e-commerce business. And wow, what a wild ride that was. And that's a fantastic business today. They've done amazingly well. And so I would call that experience, Corey, a corporate startup where it had the resources and certainly the brand name, if, if your listeners are familiar, it's an apparel retailer, publicly traded company. And so it wasn't necessarily starting from scratch, even though the business inside was, but there were certainly many things to leverage. So a corporate startup is its own animal. And then I went to larger companies. You know, I went to other publicly traded companies and there we go again. I went back to a startup and then I was number 12, I think, at this company, which had great tech and it was solving a need. So here now is a good product market fit. And what my challenge was, was to help amplify and get the message out and really drive sales. So in all of this storytelling that I'm giving you about my background, what I'm trying to do is paint the picture of, look, I understand what it takes to scale and I've helped make it happen in big, big companies with larger budgets. And I've worked in really small budgets. I like to joke, and I'm only partly kidding, that I've worked in budgets that are like $100 to $100 million. Right. <laughs> and I'm not kidding about the $100 million. <laughs> So when you have those kinds of resources, you can do a lot of things. You can experiment, you can test and all this crazy, wonderful stuff. And when you have a really small team, you got to be very judicious about how you spend your time and how you can learn and how you can grow. And so part of that is a team, making sure of the right people in the right seats with the right skills. Part of that is the technology and making sure you have the product market fit, right? So looking for what problems are you solving? You're not just creating tech and then going to find a market application. Sometimes that works, sometimes that doesn't. And coming from my side of it, which is go get out of your seat or go on a Zoom call and talk to the customers, that's a big part of understanding you know, that fit. And then there's the operational stuff, right? Working with great partners like accounting firms and law firms to make sure that you're set up and you're building entrepreneurial, you know, you're building value, you're building structural capital, social capital, human capital, et cetera. 
And so why do I explain all that? Well, because by the time I, when I left Genco and I had been managing this big, big, you know, company and thinking about my next, I was approached by a business partner to join him at Topanga. And he had all the experience on the financial side that I didn't have, you know, how to structure the deals and and working with limited partners and raising the fund. That was his um, strength. And I was really excited to learn more about that. And what he was looking for from me was to help build out the structure inside and how to work with these portfolio companies, not only to, to go find deals and try to pick the right ones for the portfolio, but then we were creating a shared services team within so that we could provide shared services like for growth and accounting services, et cetera, across the portfolio. So if I said that first, you'd probably shake your head and go, how would you do that? But because of all this other experience I had at both privately held, you know, startup environments, you know, VC backed environments to larger companies that had scaled, I had seen both sides and I had just found it so fascinating. So at Topanga, we were, there were definitely some portfolios that were in the, what I call the startup garage. And we worked with them to, uh, you know, to create strategies and, and really try to grow and scale them. Love it. So listen, I, I feel like there's, you know, so many topics we can spend hours talking about based upon your experience. But you, as a podcast host, you know, uh, we have uh, <laughs> limited time for each guest. By the way, uh, you know, folks, uh, Lori said, you know, she's about 25 episodes into a podcast, you know, early stage. Uh, you know, Lori, you, you know, you've gotten past the key point. You know, the, the far majority of podcasts don't make it to 15 episodes. Woo-hoo, um, I'm on my way. <laughs> so you've gotten past the, you know, what, what, you know, there's even a term for it. They call it pod fade. Um, <laughs> pod fade. <laughs> yeah. So uh, people don't realize that. You passed the, the first big uh, threshold test. You know, you're, you're going to be around for a while. And folks, I, I've, I've listened to a few episodes of the podcast, uh, Succession Stories, and definitely check it out. I mean, if you have any interest in, in family businesses and succession and, you know, hearing, you know, she's had some great, good, great guests on and I'm a, uh, you know, there's a million podcasts out there. You know, I really think, especially for listeners of this uh, of this show who want to delve more into, you know, we we touched on some things here, but she really gets into depth with the great guests and stories around, uh, you know, uh, the whole family business experience and succession, you know, uh, and that kind of stuff at a level that, you know, because we're more deal- generally deal-based, we're not going to get into here. So definitely check that out. If people want to, I assume that's uh, on all the major podcast players and all that kind of good stuff. Uh, Absolutely. Anywhere, right? Absolutely. Um, and then where else, uh, you know, in terms of just finding out whether it's more about the podcast, but also more importantly, more about you and the other things that you do, uh, what's the best place for people to go? My website would be a great place to go. Smalldotbig.com is my website, smalldotbig.com. And I'm on LinkedIn if they want to connect with me there. And my show, Succession Stories, is also on LinkedIn to join the community and be part of the conversation. And I'd love to connect. Great. And one last question before I ask, well, so I guess maybe this is the, what do they say, penultimate question. Um, who do you, because I, I want to make sure people understand, um, who's your ideal client in terms of your, you know, current company? I mean, we heard about what you do, but, you know, who, what types of companies, whether it's industry, size of company, whatever, so people can, can know what, you know, who's your ideal client? Yeah, I love working with really motivated CEOs, founders, owners of small to medium-sized companies. Privately held companies would be ideal because they have the control and they have the vision and there's some gap of where they are now and where they want to be. Maybe the pandemic is reinforcing that gap and they're feeling that they're just not aligned with their team. And so I love working with 
CEOs and their teams to bring together a strategic planning process that, that not only kind of galvanizes and re-energize, but also creates that sense of, of going forward, that momentum, this, this uh, alignment is so impactful that a team understands where they're going. And then I work with them on an ongoing basis quarterly for touch base and accountability sessions. So it's not just, hey, we're going to build a really beautiful plan and document. It's going to sit on a shelf or sit in Google Docs and, and get you know, virtually dusty. But we bring it to life. And that's what it's about. And that's what I've done throughout my career with teams is we create the plans, but then we execute. And that's where a lot of companies fall off. There's an amazing statistic that 90% of strategies never get executed. And so you beg the question, why is that the case? And I look to break that chain and working with companies to, to really implement their vision for Thanks. growth. Excellent. So my last question is my highest ideal is freedom. And for me, that ranges from freedom from all people in the world from oppression and things like that to the reason why I'm an entrepreneur. And I love, you know, a lot of what you said on this podcast about entrepreneurs looking to build things and having visions and, you know, whatever is, you know, all tied into it for me. What does freedom mean to you and how does it apply to your life and business? Freedom to me is working with really visionary, creative, kind, clever people and enabling their vision to take flight. You know, I, I just, I've always enjoyed that. I enjoy being the person that helps sort of, there's this wonderful idea out there and it's up in the sky. How do we ground that and how do we make it happen? And I think that's part of the, my why and what I bring and why I'm enjoying consulting. I think also an ideal is, is back to education. There's a lot of education causes that I support and, and with my time, talent and treasure and I feel really strongly about that, especially for, for young girls uh, to be able to have choices in their lives. It's really important for them to be educated. I love that. Lori Buckman, thank you for being a wonderful guest on the DealQuest podcast. Thanks, Corey. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for joining me on this episode of DealQuest, where we help you understand how deal-driven growth can be your ticket to freedom. I want to invite you to a unique way to tap into the wisdom and experience of the DealQuest community. Join the DealQuest Deal Den Zoom calls, a free monthly 90-minute mastermind. In the mastermind, we address all the challenges you may be facing and help support you with the opportunities that may arise in terms of deal-driven growth. You will get input not only from me, but all the members on the call will collaborate and serve each other in a mastermind format. To sign up for the free mastermind, go to www.coreycupfer.com slash dealden. That's coreycupfer.com slash dealden. I'll see you there. I'm Corey Kupfer. Until next week, wishing you the freedom and financial prosperity that I know your deal quest will bring.